At about 5 p.m. on a hot Friday afternoon in August 1831, two men faced each other on a sandbar in the middle of the Mississippi River at the height of the city of St. Louis. The sandbar, known at the time as Bloody Island, was on the border between the states of Missouri and Illinois. The sandbar had appeared, moved around a bit depending on the whims of the current, as sandbars tend to do, but the main thing was that it wasn't necessarily in either state. This was a key element because it allowed the authorities in both jurisdictions to turn a blind eye to stuff happening there, if they so chose. And when it came to dueling, which was technically illegal in both states, that was their preferred course. Gentlemen, it was felt, should be able to settle their quarrels through violence without the inconvenience of having the authorities stick their noses in. And dueling was what the two men facing each other on Bloody Island were up to. On one side was a congressman called Spencer Darwin Pettis. On the other was one Major Thomas Biddle, a director of the St. Louis branch of the Second Bank of the United States and brother of the president of that institution. Now, the issue here is that Major Biddle was noted for being extremely nearsighted, which is not a great qualification for a duelist, and in those circumstances not much of a promise for a long and productive life, as we will see. But the shots that would shortly ring out were in fact the result of a conflict that was taking place elsewhere, in the worlds of politics and finance. So, as the party that had been challenged to the duel, Biddle was able to name the terms, and being as nearsighted as he was, he knew he would be unable to hit any target at nine feet. Therefore, he had elected to fire at a distance of five feet. That's a little over a metre and a half. Effectively, point-blank range. You have to wonder how they felt. Both men must have been aware they were probably going to die. And according to one account, they had both ordered coffins. I'll let Nicholas B. Wainwright of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania tell the story. Quote, The duelists stood back to back, separated by a scant five feet. Opposite the scene, the banks of the river were thronged with people, gathered to witness the event. With the words, wheel and fire, the duelists spun around, arms extended, pistols overlapping, and fired simultaneously. As Biddle's bullet passed clear through Pettis, striking him in the abdomen, his friends rushed forward to prevent his fall. Biddle, hit in the hip, was on the ground. It is said that the two men exchanged forgivenesses before they were taken from the island. Pettis died the next day, his funeral long remembered as one of the largest that St. Louis had ever known. A major Biddle lingered for several days, suffering severely. On the morning of the 28th, when Colonel George Crogham, Inspector General of the Army, called on him, he seemed better, and his physicians, 
who, the morning before, were in despair, then spoke with confidence of his recovery. End quote. Biddle died the following day, Monday, August the 29th. So, what was behind this rather sad and very pointless duel? Well, the immediate cause dated back to the 1830 election, during which finance and banking were central issues. Speaking during the campaign, Pettis had criticised Biddle's brother Nicholas, the President of the Second Bank of the United States. Thomas had responded by calling Pettis a, quote, dish of skimmed milk, end quote, and, quote, a plate of dried herrings, end quote, prompting the latter to respond by calling into question Biddle's manhood. He also embarked on a campaign against him in the press. I realise that these days much worse than that goes down on social media on a daily basis, well, minute by minute, actually. I shudder to think of the casualty rate if only a small part of those insults resulted in a duel. But those were other times. Anyway, the argument escalated when Biddle discovered that Pettis, who was unwell, was resting in a hotel in St. Louis. To cut a long story short, Biddle administered a horse-whipping to Pettis, who then went to court to get Biddle bound over to keep the peace. But that didn't finish the dispute, which ended with Pettis challenging Biddle to the fatal duel and both men dying. Honour satisfied, but, well, dead. As I mentioned earlier, these were shots fired in a wider conflict. That wider conflict was a series of clashes between a president, resentful over an earlier election he was deemed to have lost, unfairly, he thought, and convinced he was doing the right thing by his voters, between that president and a moneyed aristocratic elite that opposed him. The conflict has been dubbed the Bank Wars, and it ended in victory for the President, but it was a Pyrrhic victory, the type that exacts an unacceptable toll on the victor. That's because shortly after the President's triumph, the economy imploded, going into a deep depression, one that might have been avoided had the President's victory not destroyed the very institution that might have prevented the depression. And that institution was the second bank of the United States. To all intents and purposes, this nation's central bank. It was a central bank, 19th century style, true. But alongside its commercial banking activities, it held on to the government's money, tried to ensure the currency had a uniform value nationwide, and sought to keep inflation under control controlling the money supply by reining in lending by the various state banks. None of this is a route to popularity, but generally speaking, central bankers aren't in the business to win Person of the Year awards. At least that's according to one telling. There is another narrative in which the events of the bank wars were almost entirely incidental. But according to the first telling, the president, in short, shot himself in the foot, or better, he shot his successor in the foot because he'd left office by the time the damage became apparent. Hello, and welcome to the Boom and Bust podcast and part two of the life and strange death of the Second Bank of the United States. 
which we conclude by discussing the bank's demise and the bust that followed. If you haven't already, you might want to go back and listen to the first part of this series, which describes the Panic of 1819 and its fallout. As you will recall, the Panic of 1819 was basically caused by the over-enthusiastic extension of credit, or, to put it another way, too much lending, mainly at the behest of the people trudging westwards into lands acquired in the huge Louisiana Purchase, lands already occupied by native peoples whom the European settlers were displacing. Some of the people heading west were actually engaged in some truly monumental land speculation and were leveraged up to the eyeballs. Excessive credit creation was followed by an over-hasty contraction of the money supply, for which Langdon Chevis, the second president of the bank, was blamed. There was an epic banking crash, as the dodgy notes that state-chartered banks had issued were spurned in favour of precious metal, which the state banks didn't have, leading to whole swathes of the industry collapsing, and individuals being ruined when required to pay their loans in hard cash. As we saw in part one, prices of farm produce fell for three years from the summer of 1818, sliding 45% between 1818 and 1821. Distress on the farm spread to farmers' suppliers with food, iron and timber falling an average of 31% in that period. There were repossessions of land that the government had sold to people who couldn't actually pay for it, even after repeated uh, price cuts and loan extensions. It was grim, and the BUS took the blame for it. It also ended up with significant amounts of foreclosed real estate on its books. Chevis resigned in 1822, and Nicholas Biddle, the brother of Major Tom, the duelist mentioned above, and the government representative on the board of the Second Bank, uh, took over as president of the bank, that is. Biddle is one of the two characters who are central to our story. The other is Andrew Jackson, the seventh president of the United States, and I believe one much admired by former President Trump and his acolytes. But let's look first at Nicholas Biddle. He was born in 1786 in Philadelphia into a prominent and very wealthy local family that boasted all the right credentials for a just post-revolutionary America. There was an uncle who died during the War of Independence, another who was a member of the First Continental Congress, and so on. He was also extremely bright. He would have been ready to graduate from university at the age of 13. That's 13, one three. But graduation was held over for a couple of years. Instead, he graduated from Princeton, then called the College of New Jersey, in 1801, at the spectacularly young age of 15. According to Appleton's Cyclopedia of American Biography, he was joint top of his class and was valedictorian. For non-American listeners, that means he was chosen to give the speech, bidding farewell to the institution on behalf of his year group. 
he then went on to study law. Given his glittering credentials, in 1804, Biddle landed a role as secretary to John Armstrong, the US minister, that's the ambassador, to France. His job was to audit the reparations claims against France on the part of American citizens. These claims were to be taken over by the US and offset against the price of the Louisiana Purchase, which was being negotiated by James Monroe. Biddle also got to attend Emperor Napoleon's coronation. Biddle's abilities and his youth wowed the French. In 1805, he embarked on a grand tour of Europe, taking in the usual spots, France, Switzerland and the Italian peninsula, for there was as yet no Italy. And the following year, he extended his journey to Greece and its islands, which was unusual at the time. As an aside, his trip included a visit to the island of Hydra, later the spot where a then unknown 26-year-old poet, writer and singer called Leonard Cohen, invested a bequest of $1,500 in buying a house that he went on to live in for seven years between 1960 and 1967. Biddle didn't get into songwriting. Instead, he became very fond of Greek literature. His journey back took him along the Rhine and through Holland before he turned up in England. While there, he got a gig as secretary to Monroe, who had been appointed ambassador to Britain. He returned to the US in 1807. That relationship with Monroe stood Biddle in good stead. In 1819, Monroe, by then president, made Biddle the government representative on the board of the BUS and in 1822 he became president of the institution. In the intervening years, Biddle had gotten into publishing, editing the journals of explorers Lewis and Clark, a task he didn't complete. He had tried his hand at politics. He was elected to the Pennsylvania State Legislature in 1810, and he made a name for himself as a raconteur and host of fun soirees for the great and the good of Philadelphia and of local and national politics. In short, a decent resume. While Biddle as a person doesn't excite any great emotion in the modern observer, envy of his intellect perhaps, or of his luck at being born in the right bed to enjoy the sort of lifestyle denied to most at the time, I just can't say the same about Andrew Jackson, the man behind the Indian Removal Act and the subsequent Trail of Tears, ethnic cleansing by any other name, possibly even genocide. It's fair to say that Jackson had a tough start in life. He was born in March 1767 and never knew his father, who died in an accident just before he was born. During the War of Independence, he was taken prisoner by the British, together with his brother Robert. While a prisoner, he was slashed with a sword by a British officer for refusing to do as instructed. Both the boys contracted smallpox and nearly starved to death as well. They were rescued from prison by their mother, but were forced to walk home, a journey of 40 miles or about 65 kilometres, and one that killed Robert. Andrew survived, but was left an orphan aged 14. After his mother contracted cholera, one died while nursing American prisoners of war on two hulks in Charleston Harbour. 
Not especially surprisingly, Jackson hated the British, whom he blamed, not unreasonably, for the loss of his family. Along with a career as lawyer and politician, Jackson was a land speculator, a merchant, a slave owner and a trader, and the most aggressive enemy of the Indians in early American history. He also fought a duel in 1806, during which he, in effect, killed his opponent in cold blood, a move that led to his becoming a social outcast. He later fought another duel. He became a hero in the War of 1812, which was not just a war against England for survival, but as Howard Zinn notes in A People's History of the United States, it was a war for the expansion of the new nation into Florida, into Canada, and into Indian Territory. The Battle of New Orleans made Jackson a national hero by keeping the city in American hands against a much larger British force. That was important because New Orleans, which was vital to the cotton trade, was a strategic asset for the US. In 1824, as the nation recovered from the Panic of 1819 and the ensuing recession, Jackson ran for president, presenting himself as the voice of the common man, fulminating about banks, bankers, and especially the second BUS, and promising to drain the swamp of corruption that Monroe's administration had become. I will spare you the complications of the American electoral process back then, but the upshot of the 1824 election was that there was no clear winner. That left Congress to choose the victor, and Congress was hugely suspicious of Jackson, his authoritarianism, and a long list of bad habits. In the words of one political opponent, he was, quote, from incapacity, military habits, and habitual disregard of laws and constitutional provisions, altogether unfit for the office. End quote. Congress instead voted to give John Quincy Adams victory on the first ballot. Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House and a presidential candidate himself, gave Adams his backing, and lo and behold, with Adams safely installed in the White House, Clay became Adams' Secretary of State. This all became known as the Corrupt Bargain. Jackson was outraged and immediately began campaigning for the 1828 election, which he then won, hands down, by a landslide, campaigning on a populist ticket that took aim at banks, bankers, elites, merchants, and so on, and claiming to stand up for their common man. On the face of it, this doesn't look good for the BUS and Biddle. That's because back in the day, if you wanted to be a company, you had to have a charter. This was a fairly common requirement at the time, and not just in the US. Basically, it meant that the political authorities granted permission for a corporation to carry out a set function for a limited period of time. Once that time expired, the charter had to be renewed. Congress had chartering power, and the various states could also charter corporations for activities, but only within their borders. 
In the case of the BUS, its charter was federal, granted by Congress for 20 years, and the charter, national in scope, was due to expire in 1836. So, will the BUS be rechartered and spring miraculously back to life? Given that the Central Bank of the United States today is called the Federal Reserve and not the Bank of the United States, you can guess the answer to that one. But how did this happen and what was the result? Join me next time for the denouement as the blood of central bankers stains the floor, a president shoots his successor in the foot, and a bunch of states scandalised the 19th century financial world by defaulting on their loans. I mean, states don't default, do they? We'll stop there. Thank you for listening. We will be back shortly. Music today was, as ever, a piece called All This Time by guitar virtuoso Clive Carroll from his album Life in Colour. Thank you for your interest once again, and see you very soon.